Good morning, church. I see all of you who are normally here at the earlier services. It's okay. There is grace. I do want to let you know that um, members of, of, of Third, um, that some of you may know and remember our longtime uh, sexton here, Alan Lawrence, um, died this past week um, after some a long time of health struggles and. The funeral um, is this week. The service will be on March 14th on Tuesday at 2 p.m. at the Marshall March Chapel on Laburnum Avenue. But then we're going to host a reception here for Alan and his family at 3 p.m. in the Fellowship Hall. Um, so I would just encourage you, if you know Alan, if you were knew him at all here, that you would come and support the family, maybe even help out with the reception. Um, pray for Etta, his wife. Pray for their daughter, Virginia. Pray for comfort for the Lord in this time. We have been together um, journeying. Uh, in Lent, towards, um, sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, you're going to help me out? Let me back to the beginning of the, serv- of the slides, thanks. We've been um, together in Lent, journeying um, with Jesus as he makes his way towards Jerusalem. And we're calling this series, The Revolution of the King. And the reason we're calling that is because as Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem, we notice that he's inciting a revolution. And The revolution isn't a political revolution, it's really a spiritual revolution in which the high and the mighty and the lofty of the world are brought down and the low and the the weak of the world are lifted high. And we are meeting all of these characters along the way who are affected by this revolution. Today we're going to meet a character um, that we know from the Gospel of Mark is named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is a beggar um, in Jericho. Jericho is about 35 miles from Jerusalem and so Jesus, along with many, many other uh, Jewish people, are on pilgrimage, making their way towards Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus is probably about a week out from arriving in Jerusalem, where he will ultimately face his own trial and death. And so let's join Jesus on this journey. There's hordes of crowds. Everyone's making their way through the city. There's probably many, many more people than normal because of all the interest that people are having in Jesus and what happens when he shows up in Jerusalem. So let's join in this journey as we read from Luke 18, verses 35 through 43. Hear God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you in love. So let's hear it. Let me pray as we read. Father, thank you that... You have given us this word, and we pray, as Bethany just sang, that you would turn our eyes on Jesus, as we sang earlier, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Have mercy on us, O oh God. Help us to see Jesus today in all of his mercy and grace, so that we might know him and follow him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear God's word. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, 
they also praised God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. This, in many ways, is a story about discipleship. Discipleship is one of Luke's favorite themes. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I was thinking about discipleship in the context of Richmond this week. I want you to think about Richmond for a moment. Uh, Metro Richmond is, in many ways, a very religious city, much like many uh, southern cities. Over 75% of the population of Metro Richmond identify themselves as Christians. Um, There's over 600 churches in Richmond, in every nook and cranny, every neighborhood of Richmond, you can see signs of the Christian legacy everywhere. So if you were just judging the success of Christians based on the number of churches and the number of Christians in Richmond, I'd say we're doing a pretty good job. A plus Christians, well done. However, we also know these things about our region, that our Richmond has one of the highest teen pregnancy rates in the country, one of the highest infant mortality rates and rates of sexually transmitted diseases. of children born in Metro Richmond are born out of wedlock. We have one of the highest concentrations of poverty on the East Coast. We are one of the most racially and economically segregated cities in the nation. So how do you square those two things? How do you square that we're this incredibly religious city on the one hand, and then on the other hand, we have these profound social ills? Well, you know, a lot of people might have different theories about that, but I do know that we at least know this, that lots of churches does not equal a renewed city. Can we at least be clear on that, friends? Lots of churches does not equal a renewed city. And here's why, because lots of churches does not mean lots of disciples. You might be surprised to hear this, but that in the Bible, the word Christian is only used three times in the whole Bible. The word that is used overwhelmingly to describe the people who are following Jesus and participating in his mission to renew all things is the word Disciple. Disciple. People who are learning the way of Jesus. That's what God is after. He is not after churchgoers. He is not after people who self-identify as Christian, who can say the Apostles' Creed. He is after people who are disciples, who are following Jesus and surrendering their life to his way and his mission. In fact, if you remember, the great command of Jesus, just before he ascended to the Father, was go into all the world and make churches. Oh, no, no, that's, that's the pastor version of that. That's, that's the way we pastors like to remember the Great Commission. The Great Commission is actually go into all the world and make disciples. Why? Because Jesus knew if you make churches, you are not necessarily making disciples. But if you make disciples, you are always making great churches. You see, you see what I mean? And so I just want us to remember this third family. I mean, this, this is a fun season in the life of our church. I mean, every, every service is full. We got babies coming out all over the place, baptizing them every week. I mean, all these young people, right? And that's great. We, we want to praise God and celebrate that. But let us remember, friends, that what Jesus is after is not church attenders. Jesus' dream is not to have full pews. These, these great sermons, wonderful worship services, these are not the things that renew the city. What Jesus is calling for are disciples who are surrendering their lives to Jesus and participating in his mission to renew all things. So if that's true, the question becomes, what is a disciple? How do you know if you're actually a disciple and not just a pew sitter? Well, here's what we have today. We have a story of a disciple. Many scholars, many many teachers throughout the centuries have pointed to this man, Bartimaeus, as a model disciple, a blind beggar, a model disciple of Jesus. So let's look at the marks of discipleship in his life and how we might become a disciple like him too. Okay, are you with me on this? 
Okay, let's look at the first mark. What is the first mark of discipleship that we see in his life? The first is this, desperation. Now, that might surprise you. You might think that the first mark of a disciple is, you know, holiness or Bible memorization or knowing lots of praise songs or, you know, something a little bit more spiritual. But no, the first mark we see is desperation. Look how desperate this man is. He is, he is, he is a powerless, marginalized person. You can see Luke is, is demonstrating that in all sorts of ways. He is not on the road. He is off the road in the dirt. He is not in the crowd. He is outside the crowd on the margins. He is disenfranchised in every way a man could be disenfranchised. He was what in the sort of 5% of the population known back then as the expendables. People that were better off dead that are just sort of taking up resources. And so this man hears that Jesus is passing by and he begins to shout, Jesus! Have mercy on me, yelling at the top of his lungs. Now, get this. This guy must have been super loud because these are huge crowds. And for him to be that loud, so much so that people were shushing him and telling him to be quiet, must have meant that he was just being absolutely obnoxious, right? And so even when he is shushed, how does he respond? He just begins to shout all the louder. Notice in verse 38 that Luke actually changes the word. In Greek, he changes it from shouting to shrieking, that this man is beginning to shriek, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Help me. There's a photographer in L.A. who did a project on men and women who live on Skid Row, the famous Skid Row in Los Angeles. And this is one of my favorite of his photographs that he took. And this is how I envision Bartimaeus. Jesus! Mercy on me, son of David. It's obnoxious, right? I'm sorry, I made that baby cry. I'm really sorry about that. Stick that passy in there. No, seriously, I did that because I want you to see like how obnoxious this must have been. I mean, this is kind of what children do. You know, when my, my kids were toddlers, I didn't know what to do. I just stuck them in the high chair and, and, you know, hoped that they would work themselves out. And they would just sit there screaming, da-da, on the top of their lungs. This is what children do. This is what powerless people do. And yet, Jesus stops for this man. Jesus stops. Jesus, I mean... I can tell you how many times I have passed people by who are needy on the side of the road because I am important and because I am on the way to do something important and I can't be interrupted because I'm an important person. And yet here is Jesus, not only the most important person in the world, but actually literally going to save the world. Pretty sure nobody here has a more important job than saving the world. Anybody here have a more important job than that? Show of hands. I don't think so. So Jesus, literally on the way to save the world, allows himself to be interrupted by a shrieking, blind beggar on the side of the road. He stops. Why? Because Jesus is looking for desperation. He's looking for people who are desperate. Compare this, as Luke wants us to do, because the story that came before this one is the one that we looked at last week, the rich young ruler, and compare how these two men both approach Jesus. Remember the rich young ruler, y'all? You were here last week? How did that man come to Jesus? He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All of these commands I have kept since I was a child. Mm-hmm. 
Now, <laughs> compare these two men in the way that they are both approaching Jesus, right? I mean, seriously, this is like funny. Because on the one hand, you've got this young ruler who speaks from a place of power and possession and strength and affluence. On the other hand, you have this man who speaks from total marginalization and weakness. On the one hand, you've got a man who speaks with poise and authority, and the other man speaks and screams and acts like a child. On the other hand, you have a man who says, look, Jesus, it's all I have done. The other man says, Jesus, help me look all that I need. And yet, at the end of the story, one man The man who thinks he can see goes away blind, while the man who is blind goes away seeing. The man who thinks he has everything goes away with nothing, while the man who has nothing goes away with everything. The man who has power, we never know his name. And the one who is powerless, the church has remembered his name for two millennia. What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. It is the revolution of Jesus. In Jesus' kingdom, all the values of the world are turned upside down. In the world, it is the rich and the strong and the powerful and the put together. Even in religion, even in the church, often, it is the the credentialed and the talented. And those are the ones that are given places of honor and power. But in Jesus' kingdom, it is the weak and the poor and the broken, the disenfranchised, the desperate, those who are no, who are needy and cry out for mercy. Those are the ones that Jesus stops for, the desperate. Some of you know that before I was senior pastor here, I was pastoring an inner city congregation for eight years um, in the East End of Richmond. And it's a, it's a, it's a challenging thing, pastoring a church in, in the middle of the city like that, because every week we would have homeless people come in, we'd have people who were intoxicated, people who were high, right off the streets. And there was one particular Sunday, um, and, and a couple of people told me after the last service that they were there when this happened, it was so memorable to them. But that I was there, um, and I was at the communion table. It was a communion Sunday. And so I was at the table, and I was about to, I was, I was preparing, I was saying many of the words that I say to you all when we prepare for communion. I said, this is a table not for, not for people who know they're good, but people who know they're bad. This is not the table for people who have performed well, but who have performed poorly. This is not for the strong and the righteous. This is for the, the weak and the unrighteous and the needy of the world. And before I could even then turn to, to pick up the bread and break the elements, this man, this homeless man, stands up and rushes me, rushes to the table. And he says, Pastor, I'm ready. I need that. I need that. I need it right now. I'm ready, Pastor. I said, well, I'm not ready. Please sit down. (laughs) And you know, I was thinking about that later, and I thought, you know, I wish that happened every week. Can I be honest? I wish you all did that. I wish there were more shriekers in here. I wish there were more people who who were... When's the last time you have been that spiritually desperate? When's the the last time that you were willing to make a fool of yourself to get to Jesus? When's the last time that you found yourself crying out, Jesus, have mercy on me. I need you. Friends, we all have our places of desperation. I mean, you look good, you do. We put on a good face, I know we do, but we all have our places of desperation. Uh, You know, whether it's struggles with your health, I know that many of you struggle with chronic illness, whether it's issues with your, your families or your aging parents or your own aging body, those of you who are parents, it's issues with, I mean, me as a parent, I mean, I, to paraphrase a person, I, I, you know, I used to have no kids and four theories on parenting. Now I have four kids and no theories on parenting. <laughs> because half the time, I have no idea what I'm doing. That is often where I find myself in my place of desperation. 
And I know that you have these places of desperation in your life, whether it's struggles with mental health, issues with aging, self-doubt, self-loathing, struggles with health, struggles in your marriage. Thoreau is right. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. We all have these things, and church and religion often make us feel that you must suppress those things, silence your cries, put in a good face, act like you're put together, and you add that culture of religion into the culture of West End Richmond, where everybody's beautiful and educated and successful children that are going to go to great schools, you add that in, and guess what you have? You have a culture of repression that produces suffocation and despair. But here we see here that Jesus wants your desperation. All your liabilities and struggles and emptiness and sorrows, these are gateways to Jesus and his grace. With Jesus, your limitations are no longer liabilities. Maybe you thought that your mess disqualified you from knowing Jesus, but don't you see it qualifies you? That's the very thing that qualifies you. Your desperation is the gateway to the glory of God and Jesus. So... Have you been that desperate one? Can you put yourself in the place of the desperate one? That's the first mark of a disciple we see. The second one that we see is faith. Faith. Can we just all agree that Star Wars Rogue One was everything we thought it would be and hoped it would be and that it's just truly an awesome movie? Um, And for those of you who didn't see it or don't like Star Wars, I will pray for you. Um... (laughs) The best character, of course, in that film was this guy, Chirutz Imwe, right? Everybody, he's blind, everybody thinks he's a beggar, he's slumped on the side of the building, but turns out this blind beggar can see far more than what anyone else can see. He sees what others cannot see, he hears what others cannot hear, and he can also take out like 29 stormtroopers with his staff. So the blind man is the one with the most powerful vision. This is another story in Luke about a blind man who can see what no one else can see, who can see better than all the people around him. Look at this faith. Jesus, he hears Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Friends, this is the first time in the whole book of Luke that anyone has publicly used that name, that messianic, potent name, son of David. For Jesus. This blind man can see what others cannot see. He sees that this man is the long-awaited hope of Israel. He is the one who has come from the line of Jesse and David. He is the one who has come to heal and restore the world. Verse 41, he addresses Jesus as Lord or Kurios, which is a title hardly ever used to address a teacher. This is a term that Jews use to address God himself. So this man is able to see what everyone else is blind to, that this person is the very God-anointed Savior of the world. And then when Jesus asks him, verse 41, he asks him this funny question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, why would Jesus ask that? Isn't it obvious, Jesus? He's blind. I mean, I don't, Rob Cox is my dentist here. I don't, when I go to Rob, he didn't say, okay, Corey, why are you here again? I can't remember. No, of course he's, he's, he needs to be blind. But Jesus gives him the opportunity to name his desperation and to announce his faith in what Jesus can do for him. Maybe there was a moment of hesitation when this blind man thought, well, maybe I should just keep it safe and ask Jesus for some food or a blanket or some bread. But he goes for it. He has total confidence that this man is indeed the savior of the world and that he has come to make him whole. And so he goes for it. He says, Lord, I want to see. 
And Jesus smiles. And he says, here it is, my brother. Your sight is mine to give. What amazing faith. What astounding awareness. What unparalleled insight into this person and the power of Jesus that no one else around him seems to possess. He knows who Jesus is, and he believes that Jesus can make him whole. So friends, if we bring our first two marks together, what we see is that faith, real faith, is not some sort of weird spiritual energy that extra special holy people have, that this is what faith is, simply this. It is knowing your desperation and knowing who to cry to. That's what faith is. Faith is is knowing that you don't have the resources, but that this man, Jesus, does. And you believe that he is the one who is the savior to make you whole. That's what Jesus wants. That's the kind of faith he's looking for. That's why he loves it when Zacchaeus climbs a tree to see him, or the bleeding woman pushes through the crowd to touch him, or the guys rip off the shingles of the roof to lower their friend to him, or the prostitute busts into the dinner party to sit by him. Jesus loves it when desperate people drop anything, do anything, bend over backwards, cry out like a child, rush him, do anything and everything to get to Jesus for the healing they need. And Jesus says, my child, your faith has healed you. Your willingness to come empty-handed with no agenda, with nothing but your needs, that is the gateway to my grace. So friends, do you see this? Do you see that Jesus, people like the rich young ruler who come to Jesus out of curiosity rather than desperation never get to Jesus. People who come to Jesus for advice rather than rescue never get Jesus. It is those who come to them in desperation and see him as the only one who can heal. And so Jesus is saying that to you. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Can you name your desperate places and can you look to him in him alone as the one who can make you whole? A couple weeks ago, one evening at my home, um, Sarah had a meeting. She was not home and I don't normally do as well as a dad when Sarah's not around, let's just say that. Um, And I was just in a foul mood. I was, I, had a, I was really stressed. I was tired. I was impatient. My, I was really annoyed that my kids were annoying, that my four, seven, nine, and 11-year-old were acting like four, seven, nine, and 11-year-olds. I mean, give me a break, right? And I was starting to do that thing that parents often do where they just start like barking out arbitrary commands for no reason. You know, like I was like, Daddy, can we read down? No, it's 814. We don't read after eight. But we read after eight all the other nights. Not tonight. It's a new rule tonight. No reading after eight. You know, like you just start barking out these arbitrary made up commands to give, make yourself feel. But you know what I'm talking about? So I was just a jerk. I was a total jerk to my kids. And later that night, they were asleep and I went into their bedroom and I looked at them and they just looked so sweet. And they didn't look annoying at all. And I was, I was cut to the heart. And I thought, who am I? What kind of man am I? What kind, what, what kind of pastor fraud am I? And you know what I did? Right there, I just dropped down on my knees in my girl's bedroom, and I said, Jesus, have mercy on me. I don't know. I, I need to be, I want to be a good dad. I want, I, I don't, I don't, I don't. I don't need your advice, Jesus. I need your rescue. I need your mercy. I cannot do this. I need your help. And see, friends, that's the kind of beggar faith that Jesus is looking for. Not the kind of 
exhibited faith that we do here in church. He is looking for the kind of daily beggar faith in your house when you and your wife and you and your husband are screaming at each other. In, in your room when you lose it with your kids. In, 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 in the dark places when you are eaten up by your anxiety and your pain. When you're worrying about your aging parent. See, those are the places where Jesus wants you to be a beggar. And to claim that, that beggar faith. And let me just say this as an aside. Once this begins to happen to you, your whole attitude towards the real beggars of the world begins to change. You know, I love that we go to Haiti every summer, but I kind of wish that we could change the name of those trips from mission trip to learning trip, because that's really what they're for. Because I've lost count of the number of people who go down to Haiti or they go somewhere else and they come back and they say, I thought that I was going to help those poor, helpless people, and I realized that I am the helpless person who needed to be helped by them, that they have far more spiritual vision than I do, that they know Jesus far more than I do, and that they can see way more than I can see. And when you begin to see that about yourself, when you begin to realize that the four people that Jesus commends for their faith in the Gospel of Luke are an unclean woman, a prostitute, a leper, and this beggar, you begin to realize that there is something about the disenfranchised and the needy and the unjustly treated of the world that have an access to Jesus that we powerful do not have. And the next time you see a beggar on the street or a prostitute or someone else, you might very well go up to them and say, can you teach me something about seeing Jesus? Because that's what real faith is. It is getting in touch with your own desperation and seeing that Jesus is the one to make you whole. One last thing I'll say that we see here. We not only see desperation and faith, but we see surrender. Jesus heals the man. He could see. Can you imagine suddenly seeing after a life of blindness, colors and faces and trees and sky and clouds and mountainscapes, his lifelong disability is gone. Suddenly his entire life is restored. He can work again. He can contribute again. He can be in relationship again. He can be in the society again. What do you do next if that happens to you? Do you go tour the countryside you've never been able to see? Do you go back to your hometown and see your mother who you've never actually laid eyes on? Uh, you know, do you go you know, see the movies or whatever the equivalent ancient thing is that, <laughs> that you've always wanted to see? What do you see after your life of blindness has been restored? Well, this is what he did, verse 42. He followed Jesus. He becomes a disciple. All he wants to do, the one thing he is absorbed in is I'm going to follow that man. I'm going to stay with him. I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to be with him from now on for the rest of my life. Now, contrast this again with our story last week. Jesus invites the rich young ruler to follow him. Go, sell everything you have and follow me. The young man can't do it. But now Bartimaeus, without even being asked, does without hesitation what the rich young ruler could not do, drops everything, leaves everything behind, and follows him. Are you beginning to see the story here, friends? Are you starting to realize that there is no moderate response to Jesus? I want you to hear that. There is no moderate response to Jesus. People either walk away or they give him everything. They either abandon all or they give nothing. It reminds me of that old joke about the pig and the chicken who are on the farm and the chicken says to the pig, you know, friend, this farmer's been serving us for so many years. I just think we should do a nice thing for him. Let's make him a breakfast of bacon and eggs. And the chicken says, and the, and the pig looks at the chicken and he says, friend, you know, for you, that's a contribution. For me, that's total commitment. <laughs> Friends, look, Jesus is looking for pigs. He's not looking for chickens. Seriously, he's not looking for contributions. He's not looking for pew sitters. 
He's not looking for people who just sort of get their kids baptized and throw some money in the plate and just kind of drift along. He is looking for people like the Bartimaeus who get up off the road and say, I don't care where this man leads me. I don't care what he asked me to do. I don't care what it requires of me. I am following this man and this man alone. So I'm getting excited and throwing my notes. That this is the one I am following for the rest of my life. When someone becomes a disciple, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must lose his life and take up his cross. If anyone, he doesn't say, most of you can do this moderately, but I need just a few hardcore guys to really get the serious work done. No, no, no. He says, if anyone. The only way to relate to me is in the posture of surrender. So like Bartimaeus, will you now live for this person, to serve him and to resemble him, to know him and become like him, to obey him and proclaim him. May Jesus become the supreme passion of your life so that everything else becomes secondary. I will say this, friends. If being a Christian has not changed or altered your life in any way except coming to church on Sunday morning, then you may be a Christian, but you're not a disciple. Because this is what disciples do. They express their desperation. They put their faith in Jesus and they surrender. And if Richmond is going to be renewed, it will not be through more Christians in churches, but a movement of people like Bartimaeus. So let me close in this way. I would just want you to imagine with me what Bartimaeus does next. It doesn't say this in the text, but I just want you to imagine it with me, okay? Bartimaeus gets up off the road. He follows Jesus. He follows him right into Jerusalem. He sees the crowds on Palm Sunday waving their branches and proclaiming him king. He sees those same crowds turn on him three days later and begin to cry out for his execution. He sees with his eyes Jesus standing before Pilate being arraigned in an unjust trial. He sees Jesus being strapped to a pole and flogged with whips tipped with glass. He sees the flayed back of Jesus. He sees the blood pooled on the ground. He sees the, the thorns twisted and crushed upon Jesus' head. He sees Jesus stripped naked. He sees him pinned to a cross and nails driven through his hands and feet. He sees all this, and he sees him suspended in the air, a naked, shameful criminal executed, a scornful death. Can you imagine him seeing, with his newfound eyes, seeing this? Maybe thinking to himself, God, did you give me eyes to see this? And then perhaps he realized this, that, that though, he, though he, Bartimaeus, was once naked and scorned and despised and spit upon and rejected on the outside, now this same king, this one who has just healed him, this one has become the naked, the scorned, the despised, the spit upon, the marked, the rejected, the mocked. This one has become the one who was in his place. And that he, Bartimaeus, is whole. He, Bartimaeus, is new. He, Bartimaeus, may live a new life. Friends, if Bartimaeus had any doubt at any moment that this is the man he wanted to follow, he would never doubt it again. And so I pray that we would have eyes to see what Bartimaeus saw, that we would have vision to see as the blind Bartimaeus saw, that we would see this Jesus exchanging his own wholeness for our desperation, and that in seeing it, we would give all that we have. We would stop at nothing to give him everything. So where do you start? I pray that you would begin like Bartimaeus today, that you would begin with your own places of desperation. Maybe this afternoon, maybe you could go home and close the door to your bedroom and get on your knees and just simply pray this prayer, Bartimaeus, Jesus, have mercy on me. And I promise you, I absolutely promise you, he will stop and he will answer. Let's pray.
Thank you, Jesus, that you call not the, not the strong but the weak. You call not the put together but the desperate. And I pray that we would not be mere Christians. We would be disciples, those who follow you and give you our all, surrendering all. May we do that today and every day in the days to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.